What is up, folks? Welcome to the Emulsion Podcast. This is episode 22. I'm your host, Justin Kana, and today we're going to talk cookbook risks, the downsides to TripAdvisor, the platform, why the tasting menu isn't technically dead, and a possibly perfect restaurant, as well as a great anchor exclusive story at the end all about a very, very influential chef finally moving to L.A., and here's a hint, it rhymes with Javid Bang. Before we get started, today's uh, beverage is is weird. I'm, I'm not 100% sure how I feel about this cold brew blend that I made. Uh, so I have a pretty sweet setup here in Seattle. I live right above this startup called Beanbox, where they will literally send you samples of coffee beans. And so every now and again, I get some of their little tiny sample bags. And for the cold brew setup that I have... Uh, it's this jug off of Amazon with kind of like a metal filter in it, which I really love. But the size of it means one bean box bag doesn't give me enough, uh, like a strong enough coffee. So I'll usually blend two different kinds of beans, which probably isn't great. But this one literally tastes like red bell peppers. And it's crazy. Um, I've got it just in this little basic stemless wine glass. Um, but regardless, there's something about drinking coffee out of a glass that is really, really satisfying, but it's got me all caffeinated and excited, so let's get into the show. And the first story today is all about cookbooks, uh, and the potential risks of writing one yourself. If you're a chef or or a food blogger or a writer, some basic common misconceptions, best practices, and some myth-busting as well. As per usual, the um, article's in the show notes for you, but there's a great quote from the article uh, that I want to start off with. Uh, quote, cookbooks are like restaurants. You can't make any, you can't make money with one, end quote. And that's by Abraham Conlon from Fat Rice. I hope I'm saying that name right. Um, but let's chat a little bit about the economics. So, of, of course, a disclaimer, I've obviously never written a cookbook. You've you, you would have heard that by now for me if I had, but I've def- definitely done some um, self-educating on the process and with all the news stories that have been coming out lately on kind of other people going in the direction of self-publishing and kickstarting, I've definitely kind of become a little bit well-versed just through researching the stories for this show as well as my own personal reading. So this is my kind of non-official but sort of official publishing a cookbook for dummies Um so what normally happens is you'll typically get an advance from your publishing company when you write a book. In the case that the article gives, it's $125,000, and that is something that we've covered in a previous episode all about the aviary cookbook, uh, if you remember that Kickstarter-funded project. Um, so if you're a chef and you and your partners make this proposal to kind of take it to a publisher and say, hey, we have this thing, do you want to buy it? And then they'll offer contingency in the form of an advance. And this is normally around that six-figure mark, right? So that's between $100,000 and $200,000, and that'll get paid out incrementally. So you'll get a cut when you sign and when you deliver the written manuscript, and then once it hits the shelves, you'll get a little bit more. And then a year after that date, you'll also get a little bit more, and you might be thinking, damn, that sounds sweet. But this whole process normally ends up taking a certain number of years, right? And so... Now you're probably thinking, yeah, thirty to $40,000 extra a year is pretty dope. And then you start to think about it. You delve a little bit deeper, as you do with most of these rec- restaurant economics. Um, and you'll have to kind of – you weigh, you have to factor in the time that it takes to invest yourself into a project like this as well. And you, you, you really have to weigh those things for yourself if you end up having that amount of time. But there's tons of other costs associated with it, right? So the, art- the article will reference paying a photographer $35,000 for – the book, right? And then a co-writer, 30000 And then a designer, 30000 And forgive my math, but that's a, that kind of saves $30,000 a, 
left after the entire thing before you have your recipe testing and traveling costs spread over several years. Nope, I'm out. I, I, I don't want that. Um, but Alex Stupak, who's the chef of Emplon, came out with a book called Tacos, and it apparently profited just over 10k after taxes from that book. And that, that those are like some real hard numbers that he's giving. Um, he even did uh, some chef hacks with that whole entire project, like using the restaurants that he already has as more or less like shooting studios for dishes. And then he would also ask his cooks to do recipe testing. So he tried to save costs as much as he could, and still only profited $10,000. Um, but another huge problem and one of the multitude of reasons that the Alinea group no doubt decided to do it all in-house is that the publishers only partially assist in promotion for it as well. And that will it kind of include very vague help with book tour expenses. So Chef Conlon from that quote before says, 10 Speed told him there isn't a budget, but don't spend too much money <laughs> on his own book tour. And they only apparently reimbursed him uh, $7,500 in expenses, which no doubt adds up pretty fast when you're touring around the country or sometimes the world. So now we look to these kind of self-publishing successes, right? There's obviously the aviary book that was in, they, they were, they won in $50,000 and they generated over $420,000. Uh, granted they had that little celebrity push behind it. Uh, chef Ackett's no doubt like a huge figure in that field, but what about the smaller guys? Um, the article actually references a local Seattle chef, John Sundstrom, who is, I didn't know this actually, he self-published his book from his restaurant, Lark. Um, the book is titled the same. With decently moderate to, you know, moderate success, he was searching for $40,000 from Kickstarter and then borrowed an additional 50000 from the bank and then printed them here in Seattle within a year, which is apparently super fast compared to the normal publisher two-year turnaround time. And what stood out to me by this entire process of doing it yourself and doing it almost like bootstrapped is the costs associated, right? So, this blew my mind. $18 is what it cost him to make one book. And that's where it kind of like flipped itself on its head for me, right? So the, the publisher can apparently make it for between $3 and $6. So when you take that cost of $18, which is between six and three times as much, um, it makes sense now why that book costs $50 uh, on the sh off the shelf. Um, and you can see why it, it could have been theoretically lucrative, but then it ends up not being so nice when you factor in all the costs. Like if almost 50% of your cost goes into actually making a physical copy of the book and then you have to pay all your other people, it's another, it's another one of those frustrating restaurant slash chef, um, business models that just has me kind of scratching my head, um, figuring out ways to do it a little bit more, um, Intel. I, I I don't want to say intelligently as if these people aren't intelligent. I just know that there's um, room for disruption. There's room for disruption, and in the way that Kickstarter has successfully funded these other projects that we've talked about here, I'm optimistic about it. Um, and trying to do it in a very 2017, 2018, 2020 kind of mindset is is only is only positive, and we've seen that happen. You just need to kind of be forward thinking in that way. Um, and now is more or less also where we kind of get into rant territory, and that's the the, the why that at the very very end of the article the the 
author references. So why would you open it? Why would you think of publishing a cookbook? And they quote, of course, publicity is one of the main reasons why chef write cookbooks in the first place. If you think about it as a business, then it sucks. And this is coming from Alex Stupak. I honestly wasn't thinking of it as a business. I was just thinking of it as a brand building exercise. Every now and again on Instagram, it's cool to see someone cooking at home out of your book. But the deeper meaning is that you've rent, you're renting out a space in their brain. You're putting your ideas in their head, which has value, tremendous value, end quote. Uh, this is a huge eye roll for me. Like, come on. It is 2017. Use this thing called the internet, right? Like, who in 2017 is thinking about, like, trying to get into people's houses and into their homes or into their lives? And they're like, yeah, a paper book is the best way to do it. It's like listening to the costs associated with a cookbook project. It's just it's just cemented for me basically the reason why I'm pushing online content so hard. It's I would love to take that $30,000 designer budget on a cookbook and put it towards like a freelance videographer or someone to produce this podcast. And then I would have you know more I'll have more on that later in the show. The the possible opportunities for anyone listening but there's there's a way to scale the benefits of a cookbook for a fraction of the cost with basically a a plethora of other benefits if you were to just embrace social media and the amazing resource that it is and that's where I kind of pass it along to you guys do you guys have any chefs or that you love to follow online what do they do that keeps you coming back I'd really really love to know so go ahead and comment or call in or tweet at me with your thoughts Um, something where I really really want to start a conversation Next up is a story from The Guardian that we, you know, we rarely use The Guardian, but then now and again, they're making, they're very, very good at taking the occasional piece and making it viral. So this one's all about TripAdvisor and more specifically bashing TripAdvisor. So we're going to get right into it. As most, as with most stories on the show, I try to come at it from two sides. The Guardian, when they write, when they write is a little bit empathetic to the other side, but they're very, very good at pushing their own opinion. Uh, but unless I'm insanely polarized, I'll typically kind of give you just the facts in that case and then kind of give my opinion. But for those of you that don't know, TripAdvisor is a travel review site, more or less. It also has an app, and it claims you can get trusted reviews on hotels, restaurants, and attractions so that when you go to a new place, you get this crowdsourced ranking of where you should more or less spend your time and your money and your appetite. So I'll quote right away from uh, Tom Hetherington, uh, who's the CEO of Manchester's Northern Restaurant and Bar Exhibition. Quote, the Manchester Top 10 on TripAdvisor proves it's not fit for purpose. The list smacks of being driven by write-ups submitted by a variety of possibly questionable motivations, and I don't see how it could possibly help a newcomer to get a true feel for the city. End quote. And... As someone who has lived in a tourist town, Bergen, Norway, for two and a half years, I completely understand this. Quote, the best restaurants in a certain city are often the ones with the most foot traffic that manage to have safe enough food to garner the most five-star reviews. End quote. And those very, very few uh, more or less like polarizing one-star reviews from people that come in with either unrealistic expectations or uneducated orders or even just genuinely having a bad experience. Like if you're an ambitious restaurant and you're trying to do cool stuff and you end up, you know, one of your cooks has a bad day. I'm getting a lot of text messages right now. I apologize for anybody that's, you know, feeling those buzzes. Um you know, if you're a restaurant that's being ambitious and you end up falling flat on your face when your cooks has a bad day, it's really hard to justify that on a bad TripAdvisor review, right? And that really makes it hard for anyone doing anything different to do well on TripAdvisor. Um, 
Damien says, I love Bayota. Their book is amazing. I haven't seen that yet. I'll have to take a look at that, that book. Um, but apparently there's even a huge slew of fake reviewers on, on TripAdvisor. So Jay Rayner, who is the other person that we last covered when we talked about The Guardian, voices his thoughts with a hashtag no receipt, no review campaign, which I think is very, very interesting. And another chef whose name is Gary Usher, he is the chef and owner of restaurant Sticky Walnut and Burnt Truffle. Uh, he has been very, very vocal on social media as well about his own dislike of the site, and he's actually apparently tested the system his, himself. Quote, last week I wrote a spoof review saying the manager ate my dog, dog spelled D-A-W-G, to highlight that, they're supposed to, that, that their supposed fraud prevention is not fit for purpose. I purposely included TripAdvisor in many tweets telling them what I was doing, end quote. And that is another you know, huge problem. And when, when you get these people writing fake reviews and then you give them the air cover of being able to blackmail restaurants, right? So, quote, independent businesses get threatened by users with the big stick of a bad TripAdvisor review in order to score discounts and free meals. Small restaurants with bottom lines that live or die by a few tables a week are wearily resigned to it, end quote. And this does two things uh, for me. It creates another completely unproductive situation for both parties involved, the guest and the restaurant. It, it's just a huge waste of time for both ends. And it also more or less dilutes the reputability of the platform, right? So we, we in Norway, we would have threats like this. And don't worry, I'm here to kind of offer a solution. And this is something that worked very, very well for us. And that is to ask questions of these guests, the ones that are threatening to blackmail you. Don't go on defense. Basically, switch to the offensive and start to ask names, right? What's their name? When they came in, ask them to kind of describe their server so you can get a feel for like who on your team was taking care of them, what they ordered, and possibly, you know, kind of hint at a silver lining for discounts or free food at the end. So they will kind of like keep giving you information. And then, you know, sometimes people just want to be heard. And then once you hear all their their problems, then, you know, that solves a lot of those ailments. But regardless, if they do decide to write a bad review, then you basically have all your ammunition for an accurate rebuttal kind of at your disposal from the source, right? Like the person who had the bad review told you exactly what their problems were. And then you can kind of, you know, flex your your um, hospitality muscles at that at that point. But the article makes another really, really good point. Quote, I'm not against the idea of a source of unbiased, fact-checked, and crowdsourced wisdom, but TripAdvisor ain't that. When traveling now, I do hit the internet, finding fellow food writers and local experts on Instagram and Twitter, and always benefiting from their generous advice. And in the absence of trusted voices, I'll do what I used to do. Follow my nose. End quote. And if you've seen any of my travel vlogs before, you you know that's my tried and true advice as well. If you see a huge crowd of people or like a huge line, it's definitely worth at least kind of checking out to see what the buzz is all about. Um, but I'd be curious to know, do you guys use TripAdvisor or Eater or Foursquare? How do you get your, your restaurant recommendations? I'd, I'd really love to know. Next up is a excerpt from another industry podcast that I'm a huge fan of, and that's Eater's Upsell Podcast. And where I've voiced my opinion on this show before, they've had Sean Brock on the show recently, last week or two weeks ago, I think. And we covered him a little bit last week uh, when we were talking about um, Chef Health. But this, on the podcast, he actually talked about tasting menus and more, even more so than that, just defending them, the idea of a tasting menu. And in a world where a huge percentage of chefs that I've personally spoken to as well have seen in the media want to more or less go in that fast, casual direction because of 
multiple things, right? L larger profit margins and you have scalability, um, less hours that you have to work. Uh, Brock says it's critical to happiness. So what I love is his more or less empathetic approach to it, asking why a diner, like someone that would come to his restaurant, wouldn't want to have a tasting menu experience. So he quotes, sitting for three hours, talking too much from the server, too much information, too much stuff, just trying too hard, too much theater, end quote. And we've talked about this next point before as well, where the restaurant is one of the last places where you can kind of go and experience something in many cases, and not, but not all cases, void of politics or judgment or social expectation. You're, and this is another quote from him, quote, you're there to relax and get away from life for a little while and just escape into this world of relaxation, deliciousness, and connection, end quote. But the multi-course format is also important to his growth as a chef, apparently, he, him saying, quote, I, I'm pushing myself to do better every day and the tasting menu provides that opportunity for me, end quote. I've linked that entire podcast in the show notes if you want to hear more. He apparently talks a little bit more about self-care, if you're interested in that, uh, kind of expanding his current restaurant spaces, and then why he loves Southern food so much. Um, Sebastian says asking friends is his way that he gets recommendations. That's more or less, I, I also find myself doing that too, because I will I, I tend to find myself traveling to places where I will have someone on the ground, not so much just for the recommendations, but I usually also like find myself staying with them as well, which helps with the hotel expenses so I can eat out a little bit more. Uh, but that's definitely helped me in my travels in the past. All right, get your get your hipster hats on. We're going to talk trendy restaurants now, specifically a restaurant called Alta, who is Enrique Olvera's new spot in NYC that apparently does, and I'm quoting from the article, Alt Milk Coffee, Juice Bar, they have a juice bar, California-style breakfast, serious mezcal, and creative cocktails in a lounge-style setting. Oh, and yeah, top-notch top Mexican food. So the writer in the review that I've cited calls it the perfect restaurant to how New Yorkers eat now, and it seems to be a perfectly timed storm, drawing kind of influences from apparently how the populace of Mexico City, who's Chef Oliveira's hometown, that's how they already eat, apparently. So similar to a place like Olmsted in, in Prospect Heights that we've covered before on the show, they want Alta to be not more or less like a destination restaurant, but a neighborhood joint, right? So in its efforts to kind of be effortlessly informal, wear and eat what you want, you can kind of walk in whenever you want. Alta is the destination dining of today. That's me quoting the article. I'm not saying that. I don't really know how I feel about that point, but there's some great photos in the review. Uh, certainly a piece I'd love, uh, certainly a place I'd love to spend an afternoon in. Um, but what I get out of it is the idea of creating a vibe and then serving people what they want, what they're asking for, right? Without being romantic about what you think they should be eating. We're in a, we live in a world where people love avocado toast and diced tropical fruit, so serve them some avocado toast in a fruit bowl. Uh, there's this huge disconnect with some chefs about why they want, like, how they want to express themselves artistically or creatively and then complaining about the bottom line at the end of the month, right? There's this great quote that the customer is never wrong if you want their money, uh, and that kind of goes backwards to the story that we just talked about with tasting menus being kind of... Uh, you know, that that place where the chef can kind of express themselves. But 
I'm also coming from a place as someone who doesn't have their own space, and I'm currently kind of obsessed with this very empathetic but creative approach to writing a menu, very similar to the, the Sean Brock piece. But Enrique Oliveira also has the luxury of having kind of a small empire of places where he can flex creatively at Cosme and then go casual at Alta. But what I'm a fan of is the clearly defined vibe and vision for becoming a neighborhood spot. Right, So you know exactly what you're going to get when you come to Alta. You know exactly what you're going to get when you go to Cosme. And again, with these trends, I want to emphasize that they'll have to kind of conform and be flexible to change and shape as trends do. But I'm confident that he's more or less curated a team in a progressive city that can do just that. Um, Question from Sebastian. I know continental breakfast and English breakfast, but what is California-style breakfast? Um... If I had to say California breakfast, it is probably um, that very, very fresh, usually Mexican-inspired, uh, has something about uh, tacos involved, like breakfast tacos, breakfast burritos, some grain bowls are often used. I think depending on which area of California you're talking about, that also changes things. Uh, grain bowls are huge in LA right now. Uh, Mexican food is also huge everywhere, but I think it's a very, very interesting point that they mentioned California-style breakfast uh, in a New York-style environment. I just think it's what people in the U.S. eat, want to eat right now. Um, I'm a fan of omakase-style service, says Damien. Uh, I am as well. That's one of my favorite uh, ways to serve people. The events that I have done have been very, very small because I also want to be able to make sure that I'm cooking for every single person that comes uh, to eat with me. I've been in kitchens where, you know, the chef is not not cooking, but, you know, he has someone, he has a very, very specific vision for a dish, and then he has someone else executing it. I... I'm at a point where I would much rather have my hands on on the food itself and then, you know, put people around me to do everything else. But that's just where I I, kind of stand with it. I hope I've answered both of your questions there. Um, Quickly, a little quickie transition. Next story is I want to close the book, hopefully, on a story that has become... It's become a trilogy on the on the emulsion. We've covered it three times. So we've covered it when it was being built. We covered it last week when it opened, I guess, and the first reviews are coming out, and very similarly to how I predicted, the reviews aren't great, and that's from Vespertine in LA. And I'll quickly just quote a few expertly crafted one-liners here. Quote, intentionally joyless. Quote, Khan strains to impress his black belt foodie audience. Quote, end quote. Quote, the old gentleman's agreement to wait to review a restaurant benefits chefs and their investors. It doesn't benefit diners. In the age of the internet, it's time for that to change. I need a I need a frickin' air horn button for this show. I literally said this last week. You heard it here, you heard it here, folks. You heard heard it here first, and that is that is frustrating for me. But regardless, a, a huge takeaway from this, you know, first reviewer's perspective is the idea that Khan says that the um, the experience is a work in progress. But then the critic is very adamant about the price being full price, and this is super interesting. So in theory, a restaurant, especially when it first opens, is, at least in my opinion, a work in progress for a long time. And I would, you know, you can argue forever, uh, like a work in progress forever. But it seems like a little bit of a cop-out and also a very honest point coming from Chef Khan, right, where you kind of have something, 
You have someone coming in looking to review this new project of yours that's a collaboration between you and a ton of other creatives in his case, and it's so ambitious and so nebulous, it's not really clearly defined in any way, that you aren't even sure what it could be yet. And then, But at the same time, on the flip side of the coin, you need to make money on it, so you're not going to tell people it's still evolving and then charge less. But when the critic says, so if it's not operating at full cylinders, why is it still just under $1,000 for two people to come eat? Uh, and what does it, so what does that look like to your price when you are up and running? And this is, that was very, very interesting to me. I'd really, really love your thoughts on that one as well, because I feel for both sides, right? My wallet says, ouch, but my creative mind says like, why not? I'll totally pay to be inspired by like a huge, a huge, uh, project. That's very, very ambitious. It's very, very interesting. So last up is going to be our Anchor exclusive story. If you aren't on that platform yet, go ahead and make sure you follow me there. I've made that super easy for you. There's a link in the show notes for your convenience, number one. Number two, I also post my Anchor broadcast to my Twitter. So if you're following me there, go ahead and check that out. Um, but also if you go ahead and download the app and search Justin Kana, I'll pop right up and you can see this week's Anchor exclusive story. And that's all about another LA restaurant. So I definitely hope to see you there. Uh, Damien says it's way too early for a review like that. Yes and no. Um, if you kind of cater to that, there's a very, very, um, specific niche of chefs that cater to the food writing, food blogging, uh, high profile chef community. And with this project, especially what the reviewer said, where he's kind of catering to the black belt, uh, foodie audience, um, they a lot of times get their sources of information from these writers, these bloggers, these critics, and if they don't say it, someone else will. And I would much rather hear it from a critic's perspective rather than some, you know, because the in an ideal world, the chef puts out enough content about themselves so that you know exactly what they're doing, you know what their story is, you know what they're up to, and you know why they do what they do. In a horrible place, you get something like TripAdvisor, where it's 100% crowdsourced and people can say whatever they want, sometimes for their own personal benefit. There's this weird gray area in there where you get people who have eaten enough out to form an educated opinion, and those are the people that I would like to trust. And then there's one rung below from that where it's sometimes friends of the chef that will come in and eat, and they have more or less biases towards... Uh, helping the chef out or writing good stuff or taking nice high-quality photos. Uh, that is also a little bit biased in that way, and that sets the average Joe up for failure, at least in my opinion. Um, but, I, you know, again, I'd love to know what you think. This is this is the emulsion. This is a conversation. So get your comments in down below, or you can call in on Anchor as well if you're if you're listening to that. So to finish up, we've got our non-industry story, and that comes from a quick tip that I've more or less been using lately when I'm either on editing streaks for my YouTube videos or for this show, or even when I'm cooking dinner at home, and that is these live Think Aska 2.0 New York. Yeah, yeah, it's a good point. Uh, and those are these live YouTube channels that play curated music nonstop 24-7. So what I recommend is you find one that you like. I've linked one up at 
down in the show notes, and that is a popular hit station, and they remix kind of these popular songs. And I personally like it because it's happy and upbeat and kind of still keeps me in the loop of what people are listening to on the radio. I don't have a car, so I don't have a radio bumping in my in my life all day. But I usually find myself listening to these stations during the week after I've kind of listened through a lot of the playlists that I love on Spotify, and I've kind of exhausted all those songs. But if you do a lot of desktop work, or even if you're in the kitchen and you can kind of have your phone plugged in so it doesn't die, and then have it connected to Wi-Fi so it doesn't use all your data, this is a great way to get kind of free ad-free music to whatever you like all day long. Um, So, all right, I know I said that that was going to be the last story, but I do have one more thing that I want to talk about, um, and I don't know if this is something that I want to do on a week-to-week basis, but I think it could bring a little bit of value to especially the younger not younger, but like um, people are always changing jobs in the culinary industry. So um, I've personally had a ton of job opportunities posted in my social feed this weekend. So I'm going to kind of share those here for you. And if you're a good fit, go ahead and use the links that I've provided to put yourself in touch. And if you have questions, uh, I'd like to think that I've made it easy enough for easily easy enough to find myself on the internet. So you can ask me any questions that you have there. Uh, so we'll see, we'll see what happens. Uh, and you know, the job that I took in Norway was a result of a friend knowing a friend. So I would love to, you know, pay it forward in that way to you guys. And if you find yourself into a great career transition, that's, that's great for everyone involved. So the first up is, uh, La Politique, which is a French inspired shop in Austin, Texas. My friend, Derek Salkin, uh, he was station partners with me at the French Laundry, but he's um, he was a sous chef for Paul Key for a while, and they're hiring for all positions. So that is linked up in the show notes. You can also search La Politique on Instagram. Uh, next up is from a guy I worked with in Norway. His name is Thibaut Gamba. He is a very, very large man, but he's a great, great chef. He is looking for cooks. He's in France. Definitely a huge, great opportunity to work abroad if you're here in the U.S. And last up is for me. I've actually been looking for someone to partner with me to help me with online content. I've done a ton of it myself, um, been well-versed in editing, but I want to do a little bit more. And I put an ad out on Craigslist here in Seattle and got in touch with a lot of great creatives that I'll kind of be meeting with this week. But if you know someone or if you're someone yourself who does photos slash videos slash audio, like more or less Predator style stuff, that's like producing and editing stuff for those of you that don't know. Uh, go ahead and slide into my DMs. I'd love to chat with you or your friend. And last up, last up, I promise, last last one, I've announced tickets on my personal site, justinconnacom slash tickets for a series of pop-ups that I'm doing called Ready. Yes, I'm ready. So they are tasting menu style events all over the city of Seattle. Uh, so if you want to hear more about those uh, and uh, obviously come and experience my food for yourself, uh, just go ahead and generally share in a good time. Again, that link is justincona.com slash tickets. I've got 20 seats available right now, so definitely get on it. Thanks so much for listening, tuning in to The Emulsion. I really, really appreciate your ears wherever you are, whether you're working out or commuting or cooking or sitting in that nice chair that you have. See a story that you want covered? Go ahead and shoot me uh, those stories on Instagram or Twitter or Facebook, and I'll be sure to kind of fit them in on episode 23. This, this has been episode 22. My name's Justin Kana. Have a good one.